This is Resonate the Recruiting Daily Podcast, bi-monthly conversations on employer branding and the real scoop from expert practitioners and thought leaders coming to you from the mind of Jason Seiden. Take 18. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to John Shuster and William Tinkoff, who have joined me, Jason Seiden, your host for the Resonate Podcast. John and William, it is a pleasure. This is our second go-around trying to record this. Our first one went up in smoke. We had technical well, difficulties. Well, the first one didn't resonate. It didn't. Well, it did. It just resonated. We got feedback. It resonated so so. It resonated so hard. There was mm. feedback, like in an amplifier. Uh, I think that should be the name of our band, the Hard Resonators. Okay, that, that just is, we're walking a line, you guys have been out for 20 seconds, and we're walking, I can't even get through the intro. <laughs> Take 19. <laughs> you know, at one point, at one point, that guy's hands just get tired. I mean, he just, at one point, are you fucking kidding me? Not another, t- take 27. Jesus Christ. I'm leaving. Get it together, motherfuckers. <laughs> so, John and William, in addition to being, I got to get it together. All right, in addition to being two of the smartest guys in the space, you're also two of the funniest and, you know, for anybody who has not seen either of you speak or has not <laughs> experienced you at a conference, it is a, it is a once-in-a-lifetime. Um, well, I've had it more. It's not actually once-in-a-lifetime. I know you guys pretty well. But it's, it's a lot of fun. I recommend it. Um, so, so, so I just watched this um, documentary about Phil Spector. And the way that Phil Spector got the wall of sound to happen is he would make all of the musicians go through 70 takes and when they were completely exhausted, they would sound really good. And so, and so the whole process was just to go through the takes so they'd get so tired that they could create the wall of sound. Just wear them down, huh? Just wear them down, just like you're doing here. Yeah, I'm wearing you guys down. That's how we roll. You're such a genius. Right? So, so I want to actually start with something that has nothing to do with HR. You guys have a lot of brilliant insights, but this is actually a perfect opening for just a quick conversation about uh, about social and bringing personal and uh, your personal life into into professions. You guys are you are very real analysts. You do very real work. You have accolades from you know the the CEO of Great Places to Work loves your stuff and says so uh, on a monthly basis on Facebook. And yet, William, you know your Instagram account is <laughs> whatever you want it to be. And John, you've got somebody in your life who is very open about what's uh, what's happening with her. Uh, John, I'll ask you: like, Does the stuff that William does, or is the stuff that Heather, like, does this ever reflect on you? Like, do you ever worry that they're going to say something that's going to cost you business? Do you care? I, like, are you are you kidding me? I, I work with the bravest people in the world. Uh, my my two partners, my life partner and my business partner. Um, um, make their way in the world by testing the limits of their capabilities every moment of every day. It's inspiring to work with these people and I feel I feel a little conventional and let me let me tell you that that's hard to do. Um, but these these folks make me feel like Walter Mitty and and it's great. It's <laughs> Just great. Inside I, your I, I get to live vicariously through Heather and William's romantics. William, says this, you know, I've, I've watched your evolution over years, and I've heard you talk about what you do on Instagram as art, right? If you like it, you put it out there, and people can react however they're going to react. Like, is that, I mean, is it that hedonistic? It's just you're going to share what you like, and people can react. There's no, there's no, uh, no filter that gets put on it, no, like, I should, or well, somebody out there be, may not like it. You know, there's always going to be a filter, uh, because no one's truly authentic. Uh, there's no one that's truly genuine. Those are those are illusions, and the, and the reason they're illusions is you can't handle all of somebody, and I mean the all is the the suicidal thoughts, uh, the moments where they've really thought about killing someone. You can't handle that shit, and everyone has it, and they've got dark shit and skeletons and all kinds of idiosyncratic shit rolling around in them, and so you can't handle the whole person. What you can handle is the parts of that person that you either see in yourself or that you respect in them. And I can't control how people react, you know, because at the end of the day, I, I can't, 
can't get into your head and think about, well, how do you internalize uh, a post or a thought or an image or something? I, I can't. I can't do that, and it's not because I don't want to. It's because it's it's an unsolvable equation. So what I do is I just kind of wander through it. If I see something and it kind of tickles my fancy, then I post it. And usually it's multi-layered. I mean, most of the things I do, especially on Instagram, because of the visual nature, there's probably about seven different layers of things that I'm putting on there, and of which one might be funny to some, or none of them might be funny. But if it's not funny, that's okay. Not Not every joke is supposed to be funny. And most people don't even know what their edges are until you've crossed them. Until they've met you. I mean, they, well, yeah. They <laughs> know. It's like, whoa. No, I, so yeah. now, now, you guys are you're researching HR. You are spending your time with HR leaders. This has always been a tough road for HR to walk, right? How do you, how do you create a, an environment that is welcoming to people's individuality, but limited enough that my individuality doesn't get in your way, right? Doesn't doesn't offend you. Um, and historically, HR has gotten this rap for going too far. What are you guys seeing in terms of trends today Like you know, with, with mobility and with everybody having personal social accounts that everybody else can see whether you work with them or not? Are you finding HR kind of lightening up around allowing a little bit more authenticity to come into the workplace? Or, or is, is this uh, a bigger problem than ever? Well, I'll tell, I'll tell you what we're seeing in the research. What we're seeing in the research is the idea that there is a sort of a monolithic version of HR isn't what's out there. What's out there is is a story about how HR develops inside of companies that goes like this. You, you get a payroll system up in place. And then the first really big thing that goes wrong, like you get a wage hour dispute that settles for a lot of money or, or the regulators come in and want to see your hiring records or you run afoul of the healthcare system, whatever that first big screw up is, that's the first piece of software you buy. Um, and the, uh, the HR organization grows through the... Uh, crises that the company has that can be resolved by the HR department. So, so what HR is in any given company is sort of the sum of all of the crises to date. Um, and, and in that world, there's all sorts of room. I, I, I don't think you'll ever find a heavy manufacturing company that uh, embraces social media in a really big way, largely because the HR department there is really concerned about safety and anything that distracts from concentration in the workplace is a safety issue. And so, so in places where you can get killed or break an arm or stuff like that, you're probably going to see more safety-oriented regimentation. And in places where safety doesn't vaguely matter like working at Google or someplace in Silicon Valley, you'll see an explosion and flowering of all sorts of things. So 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 it really depends on the business, I think. That's interesting. Uh, last month or recently HBR just had a uh, had their cover article was about why HR needs to be blown up and rethought. Uh, which kinda which sounds like it runs counter to your whole idea of they're not being this monolithic HR. I take it you didn't like the you didn't like the piece from your comment. Well, well, the, the idea that there is that there's a company on the planet anywhere that goes. What we're going to do as a primary objective is build world class HR. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of somebody who says. Oh, HR develops like this, you know, first it's a toddler, then it's in first grade, then it hits puberty, then it gets married, then it has kids. Um, and that's how HR evolves, and that's what we're going to do. That, nobody ever did that ever. Do companies do that for finance or marketing? Um, they certainly do it for finance. They certainly do it for finance, and marketing is more of a... Uh, fad of the month sort of operation, and so and so it's hard to do that. They certainly do that in engineering. So why? So why, if, if they do it in finance, why wouldn't they do it in HR? Like, why isn't there a CHRO who thinks strategically about the organization the way that a CFO thinks strategically 
about the organization, right, from a financial perspective. Well, but again, nobody ever started this at HR department. It's a staff function. It's always going to be underfunded. And nobody ever started an HR department to do HR excellently. Uh, William may disagree with that. Uh, he, he occasionally disagrees with me. Um, Maybe more than occasionally. Yeah, but, but uh, to your to your point though, John, it's when we say no one, there probably has been someone, right? Uh, but right, but right. but right, but rarely does it uh, that that you know you we all talk to a lot of founders of startups, and how many of the last hundred founders that you've had calls with have you said, okay, so what's your talent strategy? And and it just goes over there, you know. What's their technology technology stack? Yes. How they're hiring, you know, uh, Java programmers? Yeah. Uh, what they're going to do to thwart their competition? You betcha. You know, go around the wheel. But in those hundred conversations for myself, maybe two of those conversations said, "And here's how we're going to grow, you know, people." This is what we're going to do to attract the best talent. So I think John's right. I think it's it's an afterthought, and it's an unfortunate afterthought. As far as HBR, I just think that's lazy content. It's a lazy narrative, and it's an easy thing to pick on. Uh, and it's uh, for the same reason that the Kardashians are popular. The, it's the same reason that the HBR would put a stupid title together about blowing up HR. Uh, because they just want people to buy the magazine. It's a $20 magazine. They just want you to buy it so they can sell ads to somebody. Would anyone really ever be blow up HR? If, if things got so bad where you couldn't recruit, you couldn't re- retain, you had difficulty in every part of your payroll wasn't getting done, uh, you know, benefits weren't being sourced and taken care of. Yeah, okay, fair enough. There is a Beirut. Got it. But is Beirut everywhere, 85? Is it everywhere? No, of course not. It's just silly and, and lazy, quite frankly. And I expect more out of Harvard, quite frankly. Uh, but maybe that's my expectations of them being wrong. All right. I want to I poke into this a little bit because I've, I've heard you speak. And, I, and I've watched you on, this, on a grid you know, play Jeopardy and say, here are all the things that HR does that HR should get out of the business of doing. Right? And... and this needs to go to finance and that needs to go to legal and HR really needs to shrink its focus so that it can, it can excel. Um, isn't that kind of the same thing that HBR is talking about? Like just take no, a totally they're, different they're perspective about, here. Yeah, they're talking about, well, it is the 100-year house. So I think one of the things we would say is that we'd look at HR and say it's been, even, even though there's no two of them that are exactly the same, uh, they're all kind of added on and added on and added on and added on. And really the, the theme of that talk was about get to your core, whatever your core is. Again, every organization, different initiatives, different culture, different all budget, all of those things, whatever your core is, just do your core. Outsource the rest of it and get to your core. And stop leaning on uh, because other companies have payroll in HR doesn't necessarily mean that you should have payroll. And so look at those things more or less and say, what is core to our business? What are we really great at? And then again, that's, that's going to take reflection. That's going to take not a blow up, but it's going to take self-actualization. I've got to look in the mirror. I've got to be nude. And I've got to say, yeah, actually, I've got some things to work on here. And it is what it is. And yeah, there's in every company that would be different though, Jason. And and because at one company you wouldn't give payroll to finance because you don't have a strong finance department. Sure, but but this well, so I'm I'm kind of in a, I'm in this catch twenty two loop trying to follow you, right? If I'm in if I'm in finance, I know I have to manage the ins and outs of the dollars, right? Built accounts payable, it's gotta go out, accounts receivables, they cash has gotta come in. And I know if I if I am lucky enough to grow I'm going to have a debt versus equity dialogue somewhere in my organization. And whether we're small or big, we're going to have – I am responsible for uh, figuring out how to fund us either with a loan or a bridge or, uh, or some sort of equity uh, financing. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty structured. And what you're saying is HR uh, should look across its functions and – the fact that HR even has the flexibility to do that, that in one company it might have payroll and another company it might not. Well, well you're equating – I can't imagine yeah, but, that in a different yeah, staff function. Finance is uh, classic architecture. Okay, so it's, it's Greek columns. 
And and the thing is, is when you're looking at HR, HR is more like marketing, more like sales. So in sales, they have the ability to say, should we go direct? Should we go indirect? Should it be mixed? Should we go international? Like all of that is all subject for business change. They can do whatever. Marketing, what is your marketing mix? Should we do more advertising? Should we do less direct mail? Should we open a call center? All of that is up subject for change, depending on the initiatives of the business. Finance is the most rigid of all of these because it's also the oldest. I mean, maybe the second oldest profession in the world. <laughs> actually, actually, you couldn't have had the first oldest profession without an accountant. That's exactly right. Yeah, we're, so I want to, <laughs> this, this, again, dangerous <laughs> conversation with the two of you. We're going to pull this in. So the... The, um, keep the car on the highway, Jason. Keep the car <laughs> right? on the highway. Keep the eye, eyes the front. Dish. Eyes front, kids. You, you all are out there. You're doing the research. John, are you seeing good people doing good things? Are you seeing innovations oh, in HR? God. The, or, the, the, the thing that's most interesting is that is that innovation happens in the practitioner ranks. Right? The, 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 the right, thing I'm that... I'm cutting, you, I'm cutting you off right there. That is the most dangerous sentence I've ever heard. Because when you talk about innovation happening at the practitioner ranks, immediately what I think of is the path required to then take that innovation and bring it organization-wide. And the, the two things that are required are visibility, uh, which, which presupposes a measure of, of respect for the people doing the work, and sufficient budget. Right? There's got to be a champion who can get some dollars to help bring it forward. So I have to ask, if you are seeing... Uh, innovation at the practitioner ranks, are you also seeing sufficient budget and championing of that innovation to bring it forward from those ranks to the rest of the organization? Well, the, the people who I watch um, are not dumb enough to play that game. What do you uh, mean? What I mean, is, what I mean is that great innovation in HR comes with self-financing. If what you want to have is a great idea and have somebody else take the financial risk, good luck. Um, the people that I'm watching figure out how to make their their initiatives profitable for the company. And so they don't have resource problems because their initiatives pay for themselves. Um, and they develop a track record for, for having um, HR that drops to the bottom line. Right. And so, I mean, but you're talking about people who are making decisions about be, buying you know, massive platforms that hit every... Nope, nope, I'm not. Nope, I'm not. I'm talking about Chris Salas, who is the payroll, or was the payroll manager at the Guitar Center, right? So he's, so he's, he's a, uh, a, a low-level vice president of payroll in a $4 billion company, and he figured out how to tie payroll data plus retail traffic data plus scheduling data into a system that got the right person in the right place at the right time. And, that, and, and, and just doing that dropped real money to the bottom line of the Guitar Center, and he went on from there to figure out how to turn every dropped ball into a learning opportunity. So the system that puts the right person in the right place at the right time becomes the agenda center for the learning management system because when the right person in the right place at the right time does the wrong thing, it's a training problem. Um, and so now there's a training system that feeds the people in there and after that, then they could do recruiting because they have a, a um, personnel development machine in place that takes the person at their job and helps them learn what they don't know how to do. Um, and it's baked into payroll and scheduling. And, and that was being smart. That wasn't being wealthy. Uh, I'd also <laughs> I'd add to that that that's a collaborative uh, relationship with a vendor. And, <laughs> right. So this is yet another way to action what John's saying is that the the really creative uh, folks that we see in HR have really really great relationships with both consultants and software vendors where they create stuff together. Chris Hoyt, Broadbean. I mean, there's literally hundreds of these examples of of initiatives where they do things together. 
And that innovation is actually born, you know, both out of a thought or initiative or a hypothesis or whatever. But they do it together, and that's yet another way to create that success. So these are not people who say, okay, I've got a good idea. Somebody has to give me some money. These are people who say, get out of the way. We're going to make some money here. Right? And you know folks like this. They're, they're legendary. Lars Schmidt and... Um, uh, Will, St- Will Staney <laughs> sure. are, are guys who you put them in a room and they don't need resources. Well, they they need you to get out of the way. They need you yeah, to get out of the way. But you're also you're also picking people at the. At, I love both of the people who you just mentioned, and and you've mentioned some great people around across the board so far. But oftentimes there's there's a culture and a mandate to do some great things. And there's a leader who says, I'm not going to penny pinch. I'm not going to hold you accountable to pennies along the way to the dollars that you're telling me you're going to go find. Uh, there's a willingness to take some risks and not starve a program before it has a chance to develop traction. And the reality is, is that those companies are out there, but I'm, I'm, we all know that there's a lot of people who will listen to this who are thinking, I have, uh, it, it, like, that would be great, but I, I can't even get like the $3,000 that I, I need in the discretionary budget to get any resources to try and bring a vendor to the table to do this, right? And where they'll end up squeezing a vendor in the, in the sales process on the hopes of doing something wonderful. And then somebody from above says, yeah, we're killing that deal. Now the vendor's pissed off. Now somebody's neutered. And you, so how does, somebody get, how does somebody put themselves in a position where they can take that risk? Uh, Celinda Appleby is doing this at Oracle. I had her on the program a couple weeks ago. But it's the same deal. Like she's driving it, and she's got she's got you know sufficient air cover to do enough interesting stuff internally that she could start building some foundation. So how does somebody take that first step to get that to get that foundation? Well, well, if you're looking for permission and approval, you're going to have a long career at a very low level. Permission and approval are not things that organizations give easily anywhere ever. Power is not something that's ever handed out easily. Power is not handed out easily. So, so if you want to do the kinds of things that I'm talking about, you, you sort of got to be willing to get fired. And if you're not willing to get fired, okay, but own that. Own that. If you want to, if you want to make changes happen and you want to take an organization where you believe it needs to go, um, you have to get out there. You have to take risks, and those risks are real risks. The risk of losing your job, you have to take that risk. Well, you, know, and you mentioned a couple of people who, you know, one of them actually made a name for himself because he, he literally had no budget, and so he turned to social, and he built a network because it was the only way he could do it. And you had somebody else who you mentioned who's done some great things at a couple different companies and who hit a wall and went to another great company. Right, because it's like, all right, well, you want me to do this great stuff, but if you're not going to back me, then I'm go- so I can. Well, appreciate that's that's it. when you get good enough so that you can name your tune when you move. You get to do that, but you have to. You, you don't get to do that first. You get no. to do that after you hit the home run that nobody right. thought you could hit. Yeah, that's Matthew Jeffrey. Uh, that's uh, Brad Warga. There's several great examples. <laughs> Wait, I- did one of you just? It sounds like a UFO just landed in your office. Aliens. Uh, actually, we have the Church of Scientology joining. Uh, <laughs> exactly. The aliens are coming. Tom Cruise is hiding out in your basement, and they're, no, no, they're on no, the hunt. No, if you're in HR there, you need permission. This yeah. is not a good yeah. place to do That's things. That's a good point. Truth, truth. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. talk about multi-level marketing. Anywho. Right. Um, yeah, some William. of it's some of it's also because the narrative is lazy and predominantly negative. So you read all the blog posts and you pay attention to what the vendors say. And HR is stupid. There are uh, neophytes. It needs to be blown up. Everything needs to be, it's hell in the handbasket. These hero stories, these innovator stories, if we talked more about how we find innovation in HR, it would actually help some of those people to take the risk. I mean, some the risk takers are going to take risks regardless. You just put them in a room and they go. But the folks that are out there that would love to see and hear and become inspired, most of the narrative, they go to conferences, and most of the narratives is about how they are. 
And so you're, they're beaten with that. And so I w- I'd say the state of HR right now is at a place where if you gave them more hero stories and highlighted where the innovation has actually happened, more of those people would take risks. Now, the folks that won't take risks, to John's point, become at peace with it. Just own it. Just, hey, I'm going to be right here. I won't get fired. And I don't ever have to make a risky decision. Done. Show up on Tuesday. But don't don't penalize yourself for not innovating. Cause- so, I, so I have two questions for you because I want to I try and help those folks. Uh, the first has to do with a post that Jason Lauritsen uh, made today on Facebook. He said... Uh, he, he and uh, Joker stand to a, a wonderful talk on diversity, um, and, and I'm, I'm not. I don't want to debate whether you can actually learn about diversity and um, you know and ethics and that kind of stuff in a classroom. Uh, but it, it, suffice it to say, the talk is about having an open mind. And one of the pieces of feedback that uh, that he got was his partner Joe really should cover up his tattoos if he's if he's going to be a speaker. And it, it's kind of like, what? Like, if we're talking about flying your free flag and we're talking about diversity, it, that feedback's just kind of off. So my first question is, uh, is there, does HR, is HR measuring the right things? You know, if, if a speaker's being measured on a, on a, on a, a five-point Likert scale on a smile sheet and the company's insisting on, you know, four and a halfs and above, well, I, I, they're, they're pandering, right? So, when you, when you look at how HR measures everything, how they measure their, the vendor's success, how they measure speakers, how they measure employee success, are they measuring things that will allow them to make the right kinds of connections and then take the risks that need to be taken? Or are they measuring things that are going to kind of create this nice little comfy uh, basket of, you know, don't fire me? I think I think you got to be careful. I bet William will disagree with me here. I think you got to be careful because, frankly, there are some cultures where tattoos don't belong, right? And and there is no generic. We got to find the single best culture thing here. That that that's that's the opposite of diversity. So of course, some places you should cover up your tattoos, um, and some places you shouldn't. And if you don't want to cover up your tattoos. Well, for God's sake, don't go to work in a place that wants you to cover your tattoos up. Um, but but HR isn't doing something wrong because it expresses the culture of the company. Um, and so, so this thing about what do you measure is precisely a function of this company and this place and not um, some standard set of measures, some some theoretical notion of what the right measure ought to be. Does HR, in your opinion, does HR have the organizational self-awareness to make those determinations? Again, I, I don't think there is a monolithic HR. So, so in the typical uh, sub-1,000 person HR organization, it's really been cobbled together to respond to crises over time. And um, it probably isn't staffed by big thinkers. It's probably staffed by people who are really good at solving crises over time. Um, and so, so there might be some nuanced improvement you could do in those places. But it, again, it'll be a function of what's good for that particular company and whether or not the people in the HR department have um, uh, the position to make those sort of influential decisions. So, all right. So, William, to you, and let's let's assume we've got we've got a, a company, um, we've got good people in HR. They're really good at solving a particular kind of crisis. It's time for the company to grow a little bit. They actually have some vendors who they're talking to. The company looks at them as experts in a crisis, so they're going to try and start bringing some bigger thinking to people who don't really expect it. How how can they? How would they engage a vendor? Like, how does somebody like that take the step to engage a vendor to get the help, or engage somebody else to get the help? Make sure that they're not getting snowed. Like, what does it? What does it look like? What does that person do? Well, the content pyramid is practitioners, independents, and vendors. So, if a vendor's trying to convince them of something, the first thing they've got to do is get out of their own way and let the customers of them talk to the prospects of them. And and that's really what practitioners, at the end of the day, they trust other people that are like them. 
uh, and to tell them the truth, to lead them down the right path, to give them great advice, to help them avoid some of the pitfalls, whether or not that's right or wrong, let's just put all that content aside. At the end of the day, practitioners listen to other practitioners. So um, if someone's, if a practitioner is searching for that, they're already out there trying to figure it out, which assumes that they recognize that they have a problem. And, you know, this is the, this is the age-old bit. You can't help somebody until they recognize that they want help. And this is alcoholism all the way to anything else in life. It's, it's, they have to recognize that. Vendors can help enable that and educate towards that. Uh, but at the end of the day, the practitioner has to then say, yeah, we, we suffer that. We absolutely suffer that. And then they want to hear other practitioners tell them that they, too, had a similar problem. And here's how they went about fixing uh, that problem. So if you're a vendor and you're trying to do it, you got to educate, you got to educate, you got to educate, and then get get the hell out of the way. And uh, and and the fastest that you can put your customers, and assuming your customers love you and are happy and all that, you're doing a great job. Put your customers with your prospects and get out of the way. You shouldn't have to sell. In fact, I, in my heart, do not believe you can sell software. What do you mean you can't sell software? Let's talk to the vendors for a second. You can't, you can't sell software. No. So no, you should be. It's impossible. Uh, so what you should you do? You can't force people to buy something they don't want. And that's true in a lot of things, but it, most definitely in software. All you can do as a vendor is make them aware how life would be better if they bought said software. But they've got to come to it. And so the better vendors, what they do is they put them in a situation of saying, here, listen, you don't have to buy anything, but here, here's how your life would be better if you did buy. But it's your decision. And they enable the buying of software. They don't force people to buy software. You can't. You can't put a gun to somebody's head and buy, buy this payroll system. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting um, study that was done a while ago. And this study's been done. It's been repeated a lot. And you know, the, the bottom line is, uh, if you think of it in a retail context, anybody who goes to Best Buy to buy a, uh, a digital camcorder, they're going to use the same three functions. And they're going to look at the $150 camcorder that has those three functions and nothing else. And they're going to go, nope, I need the $800 one with all the functionality that I might use, <laughs> even though they're ultimately not going to use it. So, mm-hmm. so you know, one more for the vendors. Uh, you want to educate, but we also know the psychology of this is that when people come back, they're not going to reward the honesty because they, they're still going to want the... They're going to want the sizzle reel. They're going to want the, the opportunity, the option to use all kinds of, of features and things that they'll ultimately never use. Uh, and based on your model, like the vendor is not going to have clients who have used all those features because nobody uses them. So how do you, how do you bridge that? Well, so, so there's, a, there's a pretty important piece missing from that. And that's, that's what we're seeing is that the buyers and sellers of software are profoundly aligned with each other. So this isn't really a problem for buyers and sellers of software, but it results in the users of software not getting what they need. So so our research is really clearly showing a disconnect from between the purchasing process and the needs of users. Um, who's, um, making, and, who's making the decision on their behalf? The, the buyers are. They're, it's almost inevitably the case that the, that the universe of people involved in selling and buying software are a level or two of management above the working level. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are no sound methods for accumulating requirements. So the shortcut is to close off that communications loop and have the conversation be between the buyers and the sellers. And so you end up with this trade show universe that um, um, doesn't meet user needs. It sells sells products to managers and um, what users need to do their job is, is, is often left out. So, I, so I, I see that, look, I, you know, my day job, I'm on the, on the employer branding side, and, and I see an analogous thing happen where companies are, uh, they're so worried about what employees might say 
that they cut them out of the branding process and they, they limit them to these very structured surveys and focus groups. And then, you know, 18 months later, they tell everybody, here's what we want you to say. Uh, we actually just had, we just saw, we just saw the most ridiculous thing and, and ridiculous in a good way. Uh, we're in a, in a pilot program. This company was really, really concerned about opening up anything the members of the pilot program had no messaging pushed to them at all. And they were so on message. Just like, they, they believed in the company so much that 20%, like the, when, we, when, we, when I took their, their stories and I said, let's compare that to the company's brand message, uh, it is as if 20% of them actually used the company's message verbatim. Right? They, were, they were that on point. And so it's, it's just bizarre to me to hear that companies, because there's no formal process for that, or, or they're so, you know, they might be afraid of, of losing control of things, that they would cut that off. Because when you open it up, you tend to find that the problem was much smaller than you anticipated. And the insights you get are, are much closer to what you wanted than you anticipated. And I'm, I'm guessing that same thing would be true on the, on the vendor requirement side. Well, the, the, so the problem is that, that what matters to users and their leadership, which includes the CEO, is, is its satisfaction is what matters. And satisfaction is notoriously hard to hit. And in the buyer-user uh, uh, construct, uh, what matters is the completion of contractual requirements. Right, and so so there's a very it works for everybody. You finesse the whole question of whether or not the software is good at what it's supposed to do by focusing on the, the installation of the tool set as the issue. And the installation of the tool set is never the issue. Software is useless unless it's adopted and embraced. Um, and so that's user satisfaction, yeah. and and I don't know a vendor yet. Although there are some interesting things, Ultimate is doing some particularly interesting stuff in this area. I don't know very many vendors who will say things like Ultimate does. You don't have to pay us until it's live and adopted. Interesting, right? And 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 that gets at this, right? That, that gets at the at the reconciliation of user-buyer conflict. So I want to, uh, that, that's actually an interesting point. And um, in the interest of time, I just want to, I want to switch gears uh, real quick. And William, I want to get back to something that, that you were talking about before. HR, if HR really wants to uh, connect itself to uh, higher level goals and, and be the best it can be because it's, it's, it's in a it's in a decent spot, but it's it's got some room to go. Should it be focused on developing the people who are currently there, or should it be focused on removing people who are bad fits and hiring people who are better fit? Where do you get the bigger bang for the buck? Did you mute yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Why no, trading and development? It's rare that I would be speechless, uh, but... <laughs> That's why I knew there was something. I wanted the recipe for this. <laughs> There's a magic button. Yeah. Um, quick, quick, and Jason's coming. Email him to me, man. It's, it's right. the clitoris of uh, mute. <laughs> you know, it's... So, so here's the thing. At the at the at the end of the day, training and development is underfunded because of a mentality that's rooted in people stay there forever. And if you go back to free agency in any major sports and in our country and labor, there was a point, and we can all remember this point, where you got a job and you have the job for life. And 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 you know what? You were loyal to the company, and the company was actually loyal to you. I'm calling I'm calling bullshit on you. I think no, that's no. A, no I, I think that's but, a straw man argument. I have heard time and time again from people. I, I mean, my why, father, my father worked for warehouse. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, from a, from why is training un, underfunded? I've heard. Mm. Wait, I, why am I? Not everyone's a talent exporter, so no, no, so on, they say on, like, on, why on. am I gonna why am I gonna train these people if I'm gonna just lose them next year? 
That's exactly right. So, so why it's his, why it's underfunded now is because people are finally coming to the conclusion that you you want the most out of them while they're there. So you invest in training and development, not for the long term, not for the five, ten year, fifteen year curve. You you invest in it because you want that. You want to get the most out of that person while they're with you. Not not thinking long term, and so I think we're at the beginning stages of people coming to that conclusion. I think actually training and development, not just for top talent or high performers and uh, 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 the, the folks at the very top of that pyramid, I think we're actually the very early stages of it becoming mainstream. Where all organizations say, you know what, I get, you're going to be here for three years, fantastic, let's get you on a plan. Because they'll want to get the most out of them. I think we were shackled to the idea that they would stay around. And when our hearts were broken that they didn't stay around, we, we turtled. So does this, mean, does this mean that the future of talent development is every company coming up with custom programs for themselves? Or does that mean that… I think so. I think so. I think so, it's, so it's not going to be a CCL or uh, executive program kind of thing. This is a light, quick, custom training? Yep. Gone are the days because you have skills. We 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 gate you on the way in. We know where you're at. We know that you're interested in in learning these other things. Like that's what I love about some of the startups that are out there. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, a Hung Lee startup in in London where um, what they do is it's a it's a it's for programmers and they basically say how do you want to spend your time? What languages do you want to learn? And what you do is you put a profile there, here's how I'd like to spend my time, here's the things that I'd like to learn, and then they go out and find companies that are looking for gals and guys that want that. Now, I actually think that that's, that's easy to do for programmers. I actually think it's easy to do for everybody. So you look at those, those are going to be, those are going to be skills where someone says, I want to learn this. I'm passionate about learning this. I would like to learn this. And if I can do it under your roof and add value while I'm there, I would love that. And everyone knows the game. So that long term, we're going to put you in an 18-month cycle. Yeah, probably the largest firms. Yeah, that probably still goes on. P&G has an 18-month international uh, market research uh, training program. You know what? I don't think that's going to change anytime soon because that <laughs> – it's PG. They're going to continue to do whatever they're going to do. But for everyone that isn't Walmart or PG, yeah, I think it's going to be more nimble and agile. Hmm. So, so here's a great example of how that actually works today. Um, this is another, how do you do this stuff in a way that makes money for the company? There's a guy named Sean Weora who is uh, the CIO of Texas's largest nursing and um, um, healthcare company. They have a thousand uh, nursing homes under roof. Um, and he's in Texas, right? And he's got a, it's a hundred, it's, it's like a thousand um, operations and he's got to get IT people into those places. He, can you imagine having to hire IT people for a, a nursing home company? Mm -hmm. you imagine, you imagine how hard that is? So, so what Sean knows is that is that in Texas anybody who's any good at um, uh, IT or development has either moved to Austin or San Francisco, and so and so he's in Dallas. There's nobody in Dallas for him to hire. Uh, what he does is he takes lesser talent and figures out how to make them into a talent. And the way he makes them into a talent is on day one when you go to work for Sean. You must add a hundred people to your LinkedIn network who are better than you at what you do. That's what you got to do. And once you have that network established, then you can go to work. Because what happens is, is they've got they've got competent people, but when they hit a problem that exceeds the competence of their team, they need a place to they, go. They want everybody on the team to reach out and be part of those communities. So, so the requirement is not just make the connections, but build the community so that when you have a problem, you have a place to go. And that's a new form of training that's more like making sure that the ecosystem has the capacity rather than making individuals have the capacity. And so this model is coming. We continue to see a perforation of the walls between a company and its and its community. Right. 
does that um, do you, is that going to change? And, and I, we're we're running up on time, so I've got just one more question after this. Is that going to change how companies hire? Like, is that a, is what you're saying? Sort of a uh, what what happens to a full time employee in this model? Where if I'm providing, if I'm kind of answering questions for this guy, I can kind of play this out, right? I'm, I answer six questions. I turn out to be a pretty good resource. Somebody captures, you know, I get somebody's attention. I don't know that I captured their attention, but the next thing I know, I got a phone call. Hey, do you want to work with us? And I'm thinking, well, you know, I could go for the flexibility. I'll take a project. I, you know, I, I, I can put something together. You have bite-sized training. Like, do I really need to be a, an employee now? Well, I think, I think that the idea that companies are made out of employees is very 20th century. Uh, companies are made out of supply chains. Companies are made out of contingent workers. Companies have some employees. Companies are decreasingly geographically bound. And so okay, all right. So, so don't even answer the question I asked. Answer this question. What defines a company in the 21st century? Uh, the ability to issue invoices and cut checks. So, do, so does culture matter at all? Does any of that matter? Or is it simply, uh, excuse me, we've, we've put together a, uh, we've got a supply chain, we've got a product, and it's, it's just that? Oh, I don't think, I, culture, culture is like mold, right? Um, not being able to, you, you can't stop culture from forming. Right, culture forms <laughs> everywhere. The idea that what you have to do is something special to have but culture. But mold, you generally want to like, get rid of. Are you like saying you want to get you rid of culture? It's like the idea you have to do something special to get the cheese to mold in the refrigerator. Which, I mean, you, just, you just throw stuff in there and wait. But, and so, but you need to clarify. Like You say that. Like, Are you saying that culture should not exist? I didn't say that at all. I said that culture will exist no matter how hard you try to kill it. Okay, but mold has, um, mold has a bit of a negative connotation. You know, you could say like, you know, like the sun is not going to get out of the sky. Like, there's no, 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 no. I'm saying if you put two people together in a room for longer than five minutes, culture develops. Okay. There's nothing negative about that. That's People are attracted to each other or aren't attracted to each other. And they're going to quibble about resources and they're going to argue about who's in charge. And they're going to either dress alike or not. And these are all the fundamental variables in culture. Interesting. Um, and, and it happens because you put people together, not because you decide you're going to have a culture. So should uh, so I, I, I wasn't going to ask this, but I, but I need to. Does that mean, are you suggesting that companies get out of the way of culture development and let it just happen organically? Is there, are you saying that companies really shouldn't even try to shape it because so, so what what's the goofiest form of employment branding you've ever seen it's some company trying to tell its workers what the culture is instead of listening to them as they tell it what the culture is well that's the whole look i got a whole company then that's the premise of it but it, I, I understand well i thought it was a softball and i hit it right back <laughs> no i meant the, i meant the question kind of on a, on a, big, on a bigger level Yes, tell everybody. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not selling. I'm just getting people to talk. No, on a, on a bigger level, is it is it uh, is it folly to think that you can shape a culture? Um, of course, you can shape a culture. Of course, look look at the New England Patriots. They have certainly shaped a culture. Like it or hate it, uh, there is a culture, yes. right? Yes. And it's a shaped culture, and it's a culture that's shaped because. Because if you don't like the way things go there, you get out of Dodge. Or, uh, or deflate the balls. Mm, not my balls. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't believe you took it there, right? Jason. Like, what am I doing? I was so good for so long. I got William just using completely inappropriate language. I held it and just, ah, oh, right at the end. By the way, uh, Hung Lee's company is called WorkShape.io. It's called what? Workshape.io. Uh, William, what is the most interesting thing you're seeing in the market right now? Oh, that's a great question. What is the most interesting thing? Um, probably ADP's App Store is really compelling to me for some reason because they've not just done the, all the integrative stuff. They've actually said, we're going to get out of the way and let you plug into data. And here's how to do it. And I think that's freeing for, I mean, ADP is the largest cruise ship ever made. And imagine it taking a left. So it took a while, 
but they are innovating and they've created an app store that you want to build an app on top of the data model of, of ADP and you want to push-pull data, you can, which I think is uh, compelling for everyone because they didn't have to do that. They could have stayed where they are. They're the largest payroll company in the world and they are the biggest cruise ship in the world. They didn't have to do that and they did. So, I mean, there's a lot of other things. I mean, I could probably pick off a hundred really interesting, compelling stories. And, uh, but, but that one's actually uh, – I, I, I also like this San Francisco startup called Hyphen because they're doing, uh, they're, they're, they're doing work, workplace feedback, but they're doing it like whisper or secret. So it's anonymous feedback. So you, you, you have a company and everyone's loaded and it's anonymous. And then people give feedback. Turns out, <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, when it's not tethered to your, you know, like uh, career-limiting moves, um, you'll say stuff. You'll actually tell people. And I think that's what people don't know about Benioff and Salesforce.com. When all that came about, about women being paid at the same uh, rate that men are, that was actually a woman at Salesforce.com that made that stood up and made the recommendation to Benioff, and Benioff said, "Yeah, we should be doing that." And then did it because he's A, that arrogant, B, uh, he can. And so that type of feedback when you – again, that was bold. She could have been fired. Not for that. They would have found another reason to fire her. But I love stuff like that because it's awfully um, enabling. Can you control it? No. Is it going to be terrifying? Will people do inappropriate shit there? Yeah, of course. But at the end of the day, there's more good than it will, than it will be bad. So I like stuff like that. Like it's, it's dynamite in your hands. Dynamite can be used for good. They can blow your fucking fingers off. It's, that's dynamite. It's, that's a question of fuse. That's, that's not a question of dynamite. That's a question <laughs> yeah. of the fuse. True. True. So, so there, is, there is one more really important thing going on in the uh, marketplace. There is this small... Um, Analyst firm called Keyable Research. <laughs> Take yes. us home, Dan. Take us home. <laughs> and, 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 and what Keyable Research is doing is that they are producing the most astonishing and intelligent research into the industry that anybody has ever seen. The reports are thorough, they're deep, they're easy to read, they're fun to consume. And they make sense out of a world that has been dominated by people who assert opinions as if they were facts. Um, and so, and so, so if you have a chance to go to keyinterval.com and take a look at the research that's being produced by these guys, I gotta tell you, I've never seen anything like it. Look, I will, I will say, we opened up the call with a laugh, uh, but we can close on a serious note. You two are two of the most brilliant people I think in the space. Uh, I don't. I don't give that accolade out easily. I've had a chance to work with both of you. I am uh, often astounded at the level of insight and foresight that you bring to conversations. So uh, it's, it's easy enough for me to, to uh, back up the quality of the work because I've seen your work. It's pretty good. Even when I don't agree with it, I think you guys bring a, an important perspective to bear and certainly a thoughtful one that folks can benefit from. So thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for taking a little time to do it here with me today on Resonate for folks. Thanks. I hope this resonated with your audience. <laughs> I hope. I just hope we recorded it. How's that? <laughs> I have simple goals. <laughs> yeah. So thanks, Jason. This was fun. The Resonate podcast is supported by Recruiting Daily, the source for your news.